Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivri For those Americans who live in urban areas, there's usually a choice of nearby hospitals capable of providing advanced critical care, including for COVID-19-related illness. But for many rural Americans, there may be only one facility of that type in their region, and it may be a long distance away. As leader of the University of Mississippi Medical Center and dean of its medical school, Dr. Luann Woodward knows the special responsibilities and opportunities that come with being that state's only academic medical center. Mississippi is a state that struggles in many areas that affect residents' health status and is ranked last in the country for the number of practicing physicians per capita. Dr. Woodward is a trained and experienced emergency medicine physician and a national leader in medical education. I'm looking forward to learning more about her, the medical center and medical school, lessons learned from COVID and the state of medical education in the U.S. So Dr. Woodward, it's an honor to have you on today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you. So I'd like to start first with learning more about you and what got you interested in healthcare and particularly EM. (laughs) I was a child that grew up and loved science. That was really sort of the beginning. I don't have a lot of healthcare professionals in my family. Um, In my generation, there are a number of nurses, but nobody was a physician in my family. And so, but I love science. And that was really, like I said, the spark that got me interested. And once I came to medical school and had an opportunity to see all the specialties for emergency medicine, it just felt like an opportunity to provide care and to take care of people when they were really sick and really hurt and and vulnerable in a way that appealed to me. I also really liked the range and the variety. Uh, You know, there are no two days that are alike in the emergency department. You walk into the day and you never really know what what the runway is going to look like. Some people find that exciting and interesting, and then there are some that don't like it at all. So for me, that was a, a very fascinating part of the specialty. I can definitely relate to that. When I was in medical school, that was what I was leaning towards. And when I go back, I think it still will be. So before we dive into the COVID experience, uh, can you give us a bit more of an overview of the University of Mississippi Medical Center and its mission? Sure. So the University of Mississippi Medical Center is the only academic medical center in the state. When you look at a lot of places, they have hospitals that provide tertiary and quaternary care. They have another hospital that might be the cancer center and yet another hospital that's the children's hospital and yet another hospital that serves a safety net mission. For Mississippi, we are all of those things. So it's a bit of a schizophrenic mission sometimes. We have the only level one trauma center, the only children's hospital, the only transplant program. There's a very long list for which we are the only It's a great responsibility, really, but it's also a great opportunity, and we take that role in the state very seriously. It it is really what drives our mission here is what do we need to do for the state of Mississippi, whether it's on the education side, the research side, or the clinical side, because in many cases, we know that if we don't take it on, if we don't do it, it won't happen here and the citizens of our state will have to go out of state. So that actually is a good transition to the next question, which is, you know, you personally and your team have been treating critically ill people from communities all over the state during the COVID crisis and obviously before then. 
Can you talk to us a bit about what that experience has been like? Obviously, we're 16 months into the pandemic now, and things are hopefully returning to normal, uh, even in Mississippi. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the response and maybe some of the lasting changes that your medical center is making? Certainly. And, you know, in a way, looking back on the COVID experience, it's not over. We still have COVID patients in the hospital here, just like we do all around the country. Um, and we're working hard on the vaccine message and, you know, encouraging people to get vaccinated. So it's not over, but we've learned so much. I feel like we are now in sort of a maintenance phase as opposed to the acute response phase. And we had the opportunity here because we were not on that leading edge for the U.S. We had the opportunity to have very intense and very regular communications with some of our colleagues in the Northeast and our colleagues on the West Coast who got hit harder early on to learn from them. So we took advantage of that opportunity. Here at the Medical Center, disaster response actually is a large part of what we do for the state of Mississippi. We have an official ESF-8 designation under our statewide disaster response reactions. So we are very accustomed to ramping up and responding to tornadoes and hurricanes and other types of disasters that may occur across the state. So we've got the infrastructure to turn on for a disaster, for that kind of a disaster. This was very much a different disaster. So we had to manage not only our own internal disaster, how are we going to address supply chain? What are we going to do about, you know, N95s? How are we going to manage these patients within our own four walls? But we were also an important part of the statewide disaster response team in the way of educating, in the way of setting up transfer systems, much like the trauma system. We worked with hospitals all across the state. We worked very closely, literally day by day by day with our Department of Health. We had daily calls. Um, how do we set up a statewide vaccination website? How do we set up a statewide testing website and organizing testing for the state? How do we set up this patient transfer process so that small hospitals could continue to care for the patients that they had the resources to care for, but when a patient exceeded their resources, what's the next level and what's the next level? Which patients do we need to take here? So we were able to draw on the experiences that we already have had and the expertise that I feel like we have um, over the years very finely tuned around disaster response and now apply that to a pandemic, which is a different kind of disaster than we have had to respond to before. Some years ago, we stood up an Ebola unit here at the Medical Center campus, but never actually had any Ebola patients. This really challenged us, but we pledged early on to the citizens in the state of Mississippi that we would bring all of the resources to bear that we possessed. And in fact, one of our very early successes was in a matter of weeks, our microbiology and pathology faculty and all of the teams in those departments developed an in-house test for COVID. And, you know, I think if two years ago I had said to the same group of people, 
we are going to need in very short order a test for a virus that is really not on our radar at all and we're going to need to be able to ramp it up and provide testing for hundreds of thousands you know of patients they would have explained to me how that would take at least a year but in fact they responded in a matter of weeks you know now that it's in the rearview mirror that acute phase it was honestly an inspiring and awesome experience. That's amazing. Th thanks for sharing all that. I didn't realize that you all had already been so equipped for disaster response in general, but it makes total sense given the hurricanes and tornadoes. And it's really cool how you're able to repurpose some of that infrastructure. And I like your also the analogy that you're alluding to of, you know, the innate response, the acute response you all had for COVID or any disaster, you know, existed. Um, and now you're in this like maintenance phase or this adaptive immunity of what are the lasting changes that we're going to have. Turning from how you all went from responding to the COVID pandemic for your patients of Mississippi, you know, can you talk to us a bit about how the medical school itself adjusted to COVID, how this academic year is going to be different? Hopefully, are you going to keep some of the things maybe like the telehealth that you may have educated your students on? Just those kind of examples would be great. We've had a number of internal conversations about everybody's ready to get back to normal and you know get back to the way things were. And, and, and I've said many times to our teams, we are not going back. We're never going back. We have learned that we can respond quickly and move quickly. Academic medical centers are not known for being nimble and, and, and you know, being able to pivot very quickly. But we said, okay, we're not going back. Yes, we want things to get back to normal and we want to be able to do those normal things and have celebrations and do all of those things, but we're not going back to the way things were. Before um, the pandemic struck, we were one of two centers of excellence of telehealth in the country. So telehealth for a long time has been an important part of the fabric of who we are. Being in such a rural state, it has been a way that we've been able to extend our expertise across the community, but we ramped that up. Um, during the pandemic, obviously, some services and some physicians and some programs that had not used it before found it, in fact, very helpful and very usable. Patients who had not been exposed to it before liked it. So we have new expectations on the clinical side around what we're going to do and how we're going to use telehealth now. In the education space, we, after spring break, like most of the schools in Mississippi, told the students, don't come back. You know, shelter in place for the time being, we're not coming back. We realized, however, very quickly, within just another week or two, that the students were not listening to us. <laughs> so the students wanted to be involved. We said, okay, if the students are going to volunteer, then let's try to do it in a way that it's as safe as it can possibly be. And we're getting them the protection that they need because they were volunteering at our drive-through testing stations. They were volunteering up in the micro lab, making test kits when we couldn't get kits. So the students were finding ways to plug in and volunteer. And we decided, okay, let's put some structure around it. Um, we developed a disaster medicine elective that had some core didactics and reading for all the students who did it, but it was a way that whether they were volunteering in a drive-through testing site or making test kits or doing whatever they were doing to help, 
they could get some academic credit for that work so that at the end of the day, you know, they've got this on their transcript that says disaster medicine elective, that they participated and that they did it. So the students have been very involved all along and early on, earlier than many academic medical centers, we brought our students back officially back to school last summer. And we did that under the following kind of construct. We said, if we get into such a crisis with PPE, that that might mandate, in fact, that you have to, again, step back. But we want you to be there. We want you to learn. But it's got to be safe. And as long as we don't have outbreaks within the medical students' um, population, you know, if in fact a whole lot of the class got sick, then we would rethink this. But as long as we feel like it's safe and the students are healthy, we wanted them to be in the clinical settings. And they've been a tremendous part of our response. We will, as this next year, next academic year begins in the fall, especially for the preclinical students, we will bring what we felt like were the wins, you know, bring the, some of the positive things that we found from the pandemic, and then also bring back the things that we missed from the more traditional curriculum. So we'll have the students back in person, but we will have many more virtual options. Um, some activities will continue to be virtual or something that is other than in person. We ramped up our use of simulation, as you might imagine. You know, there are some things where, that we found that could be done just as well and maybe even better in a non-in-person setting. So we're going to try to marry up really the best of both worlds. We do a lot of, just like all schools do, you know, there's a, there are a lot of in-person celebrations, in-person orientation. We have a family day. We have a lot of different things like that. And this year, in some cases, we were able to live stream those different activities so that families that normally attended in person now at least had the option to, you know, to view a live stream. And what we found was we had much broader participation from families. We had family members from all over the country that were able now to see their nephew, their niece, their grandchild participate in some significant event. And we thought, wow. Even when we bring these things back in person and we perhaps have a small contingent of family actually present, wouldn't it be fun to continue to live stream it so that family members all across the country can, can be a part of it if they choose to. So I don't think we have the 100% what's it going to look like when we get back to normal view, but we are trying to merge the positive silver linings that we learned from the pandemic with what we feel like were the things that we lost and we really want to bring back. And I know medical schools all across the country are working to do this. I think medical education on the other side will be greatly enhanced. I think those are wonderful examples, especially the academic credit and what you were just saying about getting more extended family members involved in these milestones like match day and other things like that. Uh, especially because I think society has a great, even greater respect for the healthcare heroes and the things that their their family members and friends are doing in this in the space. 
So one thing I didn't share in the introduction is your role in national leadership in medical education. You're previously chair of the liaison committee for medical education, which is the accrediting body for all medical schools in the U.S. and Canada. And you're currently board chair elect of the Association of American Medical Colleges. One of our previous guests was Dr. David Scordon, actually, on, on the podcast, who I know you know well. So there's probably no one with a better grip on what's happening with the state of medical education as a whole beyond even Mississippi. So how do you think medical schools as a whole uh, handled COVID overall? And what do you think some of the lasting national changes will be? I mean, is this something you all have discussed at the national level at this point? Of course it is. And you've done your homework, I see. Dr. Scorton actually is a wonderful human being and he has played such an important national role that has been, I think, you know, it's just been fascinating. I would say when it's all said and done and, you know, history is being written about this pandemic, there are some things that we could have done different and we could have done better. But in the context of this was a virus that we were not familiar with and there were so many unknowns and had such a variability in its presentation you know, two or three people with basically the same phenotype could get exposed to the virus and have completely different courses of illness. Everything from not sick at all to critically ill and die. So academic medicine was called upon to figure a lot of things out. The research mission of academics has never been so critical. What is this? How do we test for it? Why is it doing the things it's doing? How can we treat it? We need a vaccine. You know, all of these were pressing and urgent demands. And at the same time, we had to continue to educate the healthcare professionals because, you know, oh my stars, everybody needed nurses and we needed nurses urgently and take care of these patients. So all of the missions of academic medicine were stressed in different and new ways. And you think about academic medical centers all around the country. There are some that are community-based, public institutions, private institutions, research-focused, part of a larger academic either university or organization, some that are not, some that have been around for hundreds of years, some that are 10 years old. But I have never seen, with all these disparate characteristics, academic medicine as an entity come together around a singular focus, like we did for these last 18 months. And I think that is the why and the how that we've been able to respond in the way that we have, in the way that people have been sharing and communicating and sharing information. You know, I mentioned earlier how early on, before we had the first COVID patient, we had already talked to our colleagues across the country and they were saying, you need proning teams, you need to do this, you need to prepare in these ways. People were sharing information so willingly. And, you know, sometimes in academic type societies, there's a sense of this is my top secret information and I might not share it. People were sharing so willingly because we were all in the same boat. So to see all the organizations in academic medicine come together around that multifaceted but singular focus was thrilling, honestly. And just, 
amazing. And the Council of Deans, we were getting together virtually, of course, but weekly. And just talking about things like, are you requiring vaccinations for all these people? How are you doing the testing? What are the visitor policies in your hospitals? You know, that was a pain point, not being able to have people visit and be with patients like we were all so accustomed to doing. Um, so everybody played a different role from their own organization, but we were all, efforts were pointed toward a single focus and a single goal. And, and I think when it's all said and done, considering all of the shifting that we had to do and had to do quickly, this has been a golden moment for academic medicine. I think we have really been able individually, but yet collectively to show our value and for people to understand the importance, maybe in a way they had not before, of the research that goes into academics and and into advances in healthcare and the need for physicians and nurses and, and people to be inspired and to want to be part of that work. So I feel like academic medicine has had one of its finest hours, probably that will ever occur, at least in my lifetime. You know, I'm, I can't say for the history of the world, of course, but, but at least for now. And I think we responded as an entity very well and did a lot of good things for the country. I think in different states and in different communities, the leaders in academic medicine were really looked to as the experts. You know, so while we were figuring it out, we also had to give advice and make very critical decisions with incomplete information. Couldn't agree more with with all of that. And we've we've been fortunate to have a number of your fellow COD members on, on the podcast too. You were actually nominated by Dr. Larry Chin at SUNY Upstate, um, which is why we invited you. And, and Dr. Peter Buckley, who I know is also was chair of COD, was on. Yeah. It very much echoes, and I think you've done a great job of explaining, you know, some of the lasting changes that are going to happen. Hopefully the the collaborative aspect is is one of those, the overcoming not invented here phenomenon. Taking care of patients in different ways sharing information in different ways, collaborating. But I hope that as a country, a big lesson we've learned and something that we will do to position ourselves to be prepared in a different way for the next pandemic, because there will be another one probably in the next decade, is an emphasis on and an investment in public health. You know, this pandemic exposed our weak points and being prepared from the standpoint of public health is a, is a weak point for our country. Absolutely. And hopefully our memory isn't so short term that we don't forget to keep investing in that and growing that infrastructure. So COVID is still very much here globally and, and certainly in the U.S., but there's a lot of work that you all have been doing at University of Mississippi outside of COVID to improve the overall health of the state's residents, something I know you care deeply about as a native of Mississippi. I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about some of that work. What else has got you excited in addition to all the work that you do to raise line uh, in Mississippi? So we are very invigorated and excited right now at this organization some of the changes that we have made that were driven by the pandemic, and there are so many, 
in all aspects, in the clinical part of our mission, in the research side, in the academic side, and just in how we do our own business side, we are going to continue and we are going to maintain. People ask me all the time because this is a this is a significant organization for the state of Mississippi. We're the largest employer. We are the only one for lots of things that I told you, and we're a big place. And people will ask me all the time out in the public, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Growing the class size in the medical school. We've had a, an aggressive growth timeline. Just as you mentioned earlier, we're last in physicians per capita. I'm not sure who'll be in my job 20 years from now, but they will not have to say we're last in physicians per capita. We will not be last in physicians per capita down the road. We are growing all of our health professional schools. Um, every single one of them, we are growing with an eye toward what are the workforce needs in Mississippi. We opened up in November, in the midst of the pandemic, a new children's hospital facility. It is fabulous. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. And, you know, people say, why are you doing that? Why are you, you know, doing the research in these particular things? Why did you open a clinical trials unit? Why are you doing these things? And what I tell my leadership team is this is the easiest question ever because it doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is always the same. And that is to improve the health of Mississippians. That is the why behind everything that we're doing. So we are working to grow our clinical footprint. We're partnering with others all across the state, establishing pediatric clinics um, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, in the northern part of the state. We're the only pediatric hospital, and in many cases, the only one doing these specialty programs. We are working with others to partner around transplant and a number of these things. Um, like I said, we're growing our class sizes. It's all based on what are the needs in this state. We just opened about a year ago a new home for our Mississippi Center for Emergency Services so we can grow and expand that footprint in emergency response and in disaster response. We are working hard to provide all the programs we need for the education of our students, but also to answer the unmet needs for the citizens in Mississippi. That's awesome. I love I love that uh, concept of your North Star. Everything you do from from the clinical trials unit to expanding your class size enrollments is is about improving the health of Mississippians, which is wonderful. That's right. The answers are very easy. It's all about that. Yeah. And so we're recording this uh, just as you're about to welcome a new class of students, residents, and other trainees. You know, what advice would you give to young career health professionals in our audience about meeting the challenges of the pandemic and beyond? So a lot of us have talked about, you know, is this a good time to be in medicine? Is this a good time to be in healthcare? Um, the last year and a half has been very stressful. We've all seen the photographs of nurses and respiratory therapists, you know, with the pressure sores on their face from the N95s. And it has been a very, very stressful year and a half. But I would also say there has never been a more exciting time to be in healthcare, and there's never been a greater need. It is, despite the pandemic that we have lived through, it is rewarding every single day. It is meaningful every single day. You never have to close your eyes and think, 
did the work I have done today, did it make a difference? Does it matter? The answer is yes. And especially when you're in a place like Mississippi, you know, the stakes are high, but there are many places like this around the country where the stakes are high and, and the need is great. And it is rewarding if you love it. It would be a terrible thing to do if you didn't have the passion for it. But if you have the passion for it, it's rewarding. It's a wonderful thing to do. And so this last year, as we were going through the pandemic, several times, I have to say, I had those fleeting um, senses of fear and uncertainty, thinking to myself, is this pandemic going to scare away applicants to medical school, to dental school, to nursing school, to physical therapy school? Is this going to, what's going to happen to our applications um, this cycle? Are people going to be scared off by the pandemic and, and just think to themselves, you know, I'm a smart kid, I, I'm going to go do something else. So, one of the most amazing things is that in this year when there were so many quite frankly just scary stories that were out there and, and frightening stories and we were all dealing with our own uncertainty and the unknown you know and people who are in healthcare typically are type a folks and don't like the unknown what we saw was that these smart motivated intelligent young people who could do anything with their life that they wanted to do were choosing healthcare and choosing medicine. For all of our professional schools here on this campus, we have six, we had record application numbers. So when people could have turned their back and said, I'm gonna go do something else, they instead chose to look at this and say, I want to be a part of this. I want to make a difference. I'm walking toward this. And that has been one of the, perhaps the most gratifying and just inspiring things of the whole year for us. That's so great to hear. That's, I know there was some publicity around, maybe that was called the Fauci effect, seeing all these inspirational clinicians and public health figures and researchers, um, hopefully being part of why people wanted to apply to medical and other health professional schools, but then obviously having leaders like yourself who are able to step up and make sure that they have the infrastructure to do so, that the curriculum continues and actually improves because of it. So I know we're coming up in time. So my last question for you is, is there anything else that I haven't asked you about that you'd like to share with our audience today? I think we've touched on most of the things. I think when we get five years down the road, you know, the pandemic will be determined to have been a very important point for the country and for medicine in general. It felt like we saw medicine maybe merge a little bit and coalesce, come together. But as a country, in many cases, I saw people not coming together. I saw people being more fragmented. I think as a country, we failed to come together against a common enemy. I feel like, at least from my perspective in medicine, we did in many ways come together against a common enemy, perhaps not as perfectly as we could have, you know, nothing was perfect, but I hope that as we go forward, we examine this and we look for those opportunities where we could have done better and that in fact when we have to face the next pandemic or the next crisis as a country and as a group of medical professionals we learn from this but i think that it 
really expose some of our strengths and some of our weaknesses. So we do have that opportunity to learn and to rally. I'm proud of what we have done. When I say we, I mean certainly this organization, but I also mean medicine um, as a larger community and academic medicine. I'm very proud of what we've done. Now the challenge is don't relax. Don't stop. Take what we've learned and keep pushing and let's make it better for the next generation and for the next round. And we can do that. Well, those are some certainly inspiring words to end on. So Dr. Woodward, I really want to thank you for not only taking the time to join us on the Raise Line podcast, but more importantly, for the work that you and your team are doing to actually raise line and train more healthcare providers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Likewise. And, and with that, I'm Shivulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.